Um, we're starting a new series uh, looking at Mark's Gospel this morning, and we're uh, starting our reading at uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and that's on page 1002 in the Church Bibles. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt round his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as Tim flagged up when he read the passage to us, we're beginning this morning a series that will last until Easter in Mark's Gospel. Now, in one sense, the whole of the Bible is focused on Jesus. Um, we might say it's Christocentric. The Old Testament looks forward to the divine visitor coming to rescue his people. Much of the New Testament letters are focused upon Christ as he is now the cosmic ruler of the universe. The Gospels, of course, focus on Jesus the human being. Yeah, sure, the Jesus who's fulfilling all those predictions, all those prophecies from hundreds of years before. And sure, it also displays aspects that he is the cosmic Christ, the ruler of the universe, the one who is uh, going to return. But it focuses particularly on Jesus, the human being, perhaps the one who is most easy for us to access. He lived in our world. He lived in the flesh. 
That's what incarnate literally means. Incarnate is in flesh. It's where we get carnivorous from. In other words, he took bodily form. He was both human and divine completely, fully, but perfectly so at the same time. And it's vital, really, for anybody's education that they should give full and thorough assessment of this figure of history. Here's some quotes from different people, believers, unbelievers alike, who say we should assess somebody who impressed them even though they may not have followed him. See if you can guess who this is. I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. I suspect he wrote it when he was in exile on St. Helena, Napoleon Bonaparte. Dostoevsky was a midlife convert in the 19th century. He says, even those who have renounced Christianity and attack it, in their innermost being, still follow the Christian ideal. For hitherto neither their subtlety nor the ardour of their hearts has been able to create a higher ideal of man and of virtue than the ideal given by Christ. Or H.G. Wells, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very centre of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Or James Hefley, who ends his famous poem, One Solitary Life, with these words. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Or just to end with Albert Einstein. As a child I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Well, before we plunge into the text and begin assessing and getting to know this Jesus, we need a little bit of background. Who wrote it, for example? Well, would you turn to me uh, 20 pages further on to page 1021, and we'll just read uh, verse 51 of Mark 14. Verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That was just after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and everyone fled out of fear for their lives. And we read this, a streaker. 
Now, who would remember such a thing? It's in the dark. There wouldn't be much to see. Who would think it worthwhile recording such a detail? In a short gospel, it's half the length of Matthew and Luke. A gospel that has such a staggering and significant claim that God has appeared on earth to save his people for eternity. I mean, it doesn't, hardly supports the case, does it? So who would have included such a detail? Well, might it have been the person who wrote it? The author himself? If you're a fan of Inspector Morse or its prequel, Endeavour, you'll have noticed how Colin Dexter, who wrote the, uh, the books, the writer, always gives himself a little cameo part in the background, wandering around a quad in a gown, sitting in a pub or a doctor's surgery, dining at high table. It's his little way of recording that he is the author. And this would seem to be what Mark is doing here. And that's what the early church thought, and it has a certain amount of plausibility. Our earliest and most important source comes from Papias, who was uh, the Bishop of Hierapolis in Egypt at the beginning of the second century AD. He said that Mark had been a secretary and a translator for the Apostle Peter, one of the closest, in fact, he was part of the three who were the most closest of the twelve first disciples of Jesus. And we read, Papias says that uh, Mark wrote accurately all that Peter remembered. And this testimony is of particular significance since there is evidence that Papias lived between 60 and 135 AD and that he knew John, one of the other apostles, one of the others from the inner circle. He knew him personally. And what do we know about Mark? Well, he's usually identified as John Mark, who's mentioned in other parts of the New Testament. He was with Peter in Rome. He was a Jewish Christian. His mother owned a house where the disciples met in Jerusalem. He was an early associate of Paul and Barnabas, but appears to have disappointed Paul by his failure to persist in missionary work. But later on, Paul's opinion has changed, and presumably Mark had changed as well. So the Apostle Peter was the principal source of this gospel, and Mark, who may have witnessed many of the events himself, is the principal writer. Well, of any document, we want to know something about its reliability. Interestingly, Mark mentions Peter proportionately more than any of the other gospel writers do. If you go through the book of Mark, you will see that nothing happens in which Peter is not present. Peter was as close as you could get to Jesus. Another indicator of its reliability is it's a warts and all account. Peter is not written up as some great saintly figure, some kind of otherworldly follower of Jesus who never puts a foot wrong. You see, it's in all the little details that lend weight to the overall impression of reliability. If a writer gets all the small details right, details that you can check, then there is a good likelihood that he's right on the details that you can't. 
You see that in Morse and Endeavour too. If you've ever lived in Oxford, you know that they're pretty cavalier with their geography in Morse. Morse goes walking down a street, he turns right, and then you know, if you've lived there, that he's a mile away. He's kind of been transported. Or if you're, um, if you're young, then you probably doubt that the police ever drove around in cars that were the colour of Man City shirts, sky blue. But... As a living source of history, I can assure you that they did. In fact, if I remember rightly, they drove Ford Anglias, which uh, are not the sort of car you want to drive fast round a bend. When was it written? Well, it's widely thought that it was written in the 60s AD, but it could have been written in the decade earlier. Why? Well, it's probably composed because the apostles are getting old, And since they were the eyewitnesses of the life and teaching of Jesus, it was vital to record all that they'd seen and heard so that people in the future, people like us today, can encounter Jesus through the writings. Remember what Einstein said? You know, it's almost as if you, you know, encounter the real Jesus, his presence as you read these documents. So while one reason for writing the Gospels at that particular time is simply that the Apostles would soon be dying, particularly they probably would have been aware of the looming possibilities of martyrdom, the abiding reason was that so people like you and I, 2,000 years later, might be able to do some very simple things. One is to identify who Jesus was, A second is to realise what he achieved in his life. And thirdly, to respond appropriately. So let's take a look at Jesus as recorded by Mark, but based on the first-hand accounts of one of his closest followers. Now, should you be a sceptic, because either the church or individual Christians have put you off, Consider the words of uh, a politician who died last year, Tony Benn, who, though not a believer, had some selective admiration for Jesus. He wrote this, It is as wholly wrong to blame Marx for what was done in his name as it is to blame Jesus for what was done in his. So go to the source. Go to the founder. Well, Mark's opening line, verse 1, spells out who Jesus is, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And his closing line in the passage that we're looking at this morning, verse 15, spells out what our response should be. Now, Mark is pretty blunt. He's quite direct. Greek scholars say the use of of language is rough. But if you're a student of New Testament Greek, you'd appreciate that because it's the easiest to translate, unlike Romans or Hebrews. So he has a bold, confident opening. It will not be a case of wait until the end to find out. He tells you right at the very beginning. Verse 1 is a kind of executive summary of the document that follows. He says, Jesus, a name which means God saves, is both Christ, which is the Greek, or Messiah, which is the Hebrew, the hope-for king and deliverer of Israel. He's the Son of God, a title proclaiming his divinity. 
So Mark then goes about drawing on four witnesses to this Jesus. He draws, first of all, from the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Malachi, then the contemporary prophet, John the Baptist, and then God the Father, and then God the Holy Spirit. So first, so the first witnesses were a couple of Old Testament prophets. Isaiah had written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Malachi, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. So God didn't pitch up out the blue. His arrival was all part of a grand plan. Isaiah wrote around about 700 BC, Malachi around 440 BC. They made predictions that the Lord's arrival would be preceded by a herald, one to announce that arrival. The second witness is John himself, whose nickname Baptist is confirmed in the writings of Josephus, who's not a Christian, he's a Jewish historian who lived in the first century. He refers to John as the Baptist. Verse 4, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, that's where the prophecies said the herald, the preacher, as it's translated here, would appear from. And that was an expectation, curiously shared by the Essene sect, who lived in Qumran, which is on the northwestern edge of the Dead Sea, not that far from Jerusalem and just south of Jericho, the home of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they were contemporaries with John the Baptist. Now, as many of you know, we're, we've started studying Mark's Gospel in house groups this week. That gave one house group the opportunity to send me a question to answer in this sermon. Nothing quite like having to do sermons to order. Well, I'm grateful because I might otherwise not have covered the origin of baptism. The question was how and when the Jews came to accept baptism. Well, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, you'll be familiar with the practice that the Jews had of various kind of ritual washings or ablutions before they offered sacrifices for sins in the tabernacle. And the message through all that is clear. Human beings are dirty and they need to be cleaned up in order to face the squeaky clean God. Now when the Jews were in Babylon in the 6th century BC, a number of Babylonians started to embrace Jewish monotheism and as part of their conversion, um, they included ritual washings to mark their entry into the holy people of God. And John the Baptist is taking this a step further. He's saying that the Jews are not by birth members of the people of God if they're still contaminated by their sins. He saw that they were so contaminated and told them that they too needed to be cleaned up if they were to be part of God's holy people, just like the proselyte or pagan convert to Judaism. Now, of course, how do you imagine the Jewish establishment kind of reacted to this? I mean, you know, if you were a Sadducee, your family would have had a privileged ecclesiastical position for centuries. Or if you were a comparative newcomer, the sect of the Pharisees, 
They didn't find it any easier to swallow their pride because their approach to all this, how to get right with God, was through self-righteousness, through works of the law, by following it in absolute detail, many of which they created themselves. Of course, that way makes them incredibly proud. So they are not going to swallow their pride and accept this kind of, you know, pretty scruffy, hairy old chap out in the desert calling them to repent of their sins. But for the common people, John the Baptist was the right man with the right message at the right time. Because we read verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptised by him in the river Jordan. Now we don't know exactly how they baptised, whether there was just one method or a few different ones. And I don't think we can deduce much from the phrase such as he came up out of the water or they went down into the water as is used in Acts 8 with the Ethiopian convert who is baptised by Philip because, of course, there it says that uh, both the Ethiopian and Philip went down into the water. Well, clearly Philip didn't get submerged because he's doing the baptism. So it may have been submersion, totally under the water, but it's more likely, and the earliest Christian paintings tend to support this, that the candidate walked into the water and John poured water over their head. A kind of immersion combined with affusion, pouring it over them. But the amount of water is not really that important. The important point is whether what it symbolises is a genuine expression of an inner reality. Whether the person has an inner conviction of sin and a desire to seek forgiveness from the only one who can really give it to him, the Lord himself. And John clearly realises this, verse 8 where baptism with water is the outward sign of an internal baptism, washing clean with the Holy Spirit. He says, I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Now interestingly, and I think significantly, there was also a new development, proselyte baptism. You know, if you were a Babylonian wanting to become a Jew, you baptised, you washed yourself in front of witnesses. John's baptism had to be done to you, a big indicator that you cannot clean yourself up. God is the only one who can, which is what this symbolic act by his representative, John, makes clear. Now, Before we cover the other two witnesses, someone in your house group might have asked the question, why, if baptism was for the forgiveness of sins... <coughs> Did Jesus get baptised? Because surely he was perfect and had no need to. So we look to Isaiah for the answer. And I can't do any better than quote from Cranfield's commentary from the mid-20th century. The suffering servant, that's the one spoken of in Isaiah 42, 52, 53, for example. The suffering servant self-identifies, he says, with sinners 
And here Jesus, who realises he is the suffering servant, dedicates himself to the servant's mission, which will involve the cross. In his baptism, he became for our sake and in our place the one great sinner who repents, to use Karl Barth's daring phrase. I think that puts it very well. The third witness, God the Holy Spirit, verse 9. At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. A vision in which Jesus is commissioned for his mission by the Holy Spirit, who then goes on to sustain him in his time of testing, verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was with the, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. And the fourth witness is God the, Holy, God, the, God the Father. Verse 11, a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now the voice from heaven confirms the eternally existing relationship of divine love that the Son and the Father share, as well as Jesus' identity as this messianic Son of God, spoken of in Psalm 2, for example. It is God the Father's take on Jesus. It is not simply Peter's or Mark's assessment. They look for a steer in their understanding as to who Jesus is from this divine commentary at the start of Jesus' public mission. This beloved son is the triumphant messianic king, and yet he is also the humble servant into whose hands the Father is well pleased to place the mission to bring salvation to all the nations, which has long been hoped for. So note, all three persons of the Godhead, the Spirit, the Father and the Son, are involved in this mission together. Well then Jesus announces the good news. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is the rule of the Spirit within people. But it's more than simply that, since the kingdom will ultimately include the restoration of all creation. However, Jesus has not yet revealed the fact that the kingdom will come in stages. Come near. Now Jesus has arrived, the kingdom has arrived, and is ready to be entered. Repent. Obstacles need to be removed by repenting and believing. Now repentance is much more than regret or remorse. Regrets, as Frank Sinatra sings of his, regrets reflect the outlook. Yeah, bad things happen. Things go wrong. That's life. It may even include a kind of um, an awareness of the adverse effects that actions have had on others. But you just shrug them off. Yeah, just get over it. Remorse is a deep regret. It is something that we do feel more deeply. It's a word derived from the Latin for gnawing, as in our gnawing away. 
the idea that one's conscience is constantly being unsettled. Repent is a change of one's mind. In the Old Testament, the call for repentance called for a change in a person's attitude to God that impacted one's actions and life's choices. It involved the idea of turning, that is from one way of thinking and living to a different way. 2 Corinthians 7.10 is very helpful. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow, that's just simply remorse and regrets, brings death. Zacchaeus, up the tree, Luke 19, illustrates the point very well. If he had just felt a bit awkward or hassled by his taxpayers, he might have he might have been said to have regrets, but then have thought, well, so what? Got to earn a living. If a family lost their home because his extras on their tax bill, he might have had a twinge of conscience, but it would have made no difference to his actions. And that's the key point. In repentance, he makes reparations to those he's defrauded. Over and above, he makes reparations from what he's taken from them. Believe means trust. It doesn't mean blind faith or keep your fingers crossed. It means we assess all the evidence and we make a decision. It's what I often call prayerfully calculated risk. And we do this every day of our lives. If we go on any form of public transport, a bus, a taxi, a train, a ferry, a plane, we are trusting the driver or the pilot. I doubt we give it an in-depth analysis. But if a carrier had an exceptionally bad safety record, we would avoid them. So we, we assess it like this. Is Jesus God on, on earth? Did the resurrection of Jesus from the dead really happen? If we conclude that they did, then all the rest follows. And the reasonable thing to do is to turn to him. The result, augmenting Verse 15 from verse 4, forgiveness of sins by God to the penitent. It is most certainly good news. It is the gospel. Here's an example as I close of a conversion of a best-selling author, John Grisham, who you might recognise either from his books or the films like The Firm, The Pelican Brief, The Runaway Jury, The Rainmaker, etc. He wrote this, I came under conviction when I was in third grade and I talked to my mother. I told her, I don't understand this, but I need to talk to you. We talked and she led me to Jesus. The following Sunday I made a public confirmation of my faith. In one sense, it was not terribly eventful for an eight-year-old but it was the most important event in my life. Let's pray. In this 
brief time of prayer, let us, particularly any of us who have never travelled the pathway that John urges, reflect on some thought provokers from the writings of C.S. Lewis. Here's the first of four. You and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions, to Christ. We all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. And finally, speaking of his own conversion after many years of running away, he says, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Amen.